Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. That were the words, we don't want to finish in the Champions League. But every time it was going wrong, we just kept turning around and blaming the coaches. He literally gets what he wants and whatever he says goes. Um, and we ended up getting relegated that year, which I think was down to you know what was in that dressing room at the time. Well, it was really Sky that put an end to that. They may not have handled it very well. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we've recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. That's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. We have got a slightly different episode for you today. So this week, March 27th to April the 2nd, is World Autism Acceptance Week. Seven days dedicated to celebrate autistic people while improving autism understanding and acceptance in a wider society. If you're neurotypical, it can be difficult to comprehend what it means to be autistic and you may be confused by maybe terminology surrounding autism. To help you understand more about World Autism Acceptance Week and autism itself, the TWS Sports Podcast have put together a great episode just for you, where we have spoken to autistic individuals, parents of autistic children, professionals and teachers working within the world of autism. So we've had some really, really good conversations with autistic individuals, parents of autistic children, um, teachers and professionals working within uh, the world of autism. There will be a part one and a part two of this episode because it's we've spoke to so many people and it's, it's too much put into one episode. So the episode will be released on Saturday the 1st of April and Sunday the 2nd of April to celebrate the end of World Autism Acceptance Week. And before we begin, I just wanted to explain a little bit about what autism is, because I'm aware that some of our listeners may not understand what autism is, or may never have come across a person who is autistic. So autism is, is simply a neurotype, um, a way of describing how an individual's brain is wired. An autistic person's brain may process information differently, and autism influences how autistic people interact with the world and, and those within it. Autism is something that you're born with. Many see that autism as a fundamental part of who they are. It's not an illness or disease. It doesn't need to be cured. Some autistic people face significant challenges daily and perhaps require one-to-one support 24-7, while others can navigate life independently with accommodations in place at school or work and at home. And we hope you really enjoy this episode and thank you so much for continuing to listen to the podcast and support our students and support our school and help us raise awareness and acceptance of autism. So thank you so much for staying with us on this journey and hope you enjoy the episodes. Hi Richard, thank you so much for talking to us today. You are a parent to an autistic child. Can you tell us a little bit about your child please? Yeah sure, my son Freddie's 11 now and he's in... Uh, mainstream secondary school and he was non-verbal till he was two and a half and we had an ADOS assessment um, when he was three and he they said yes you know 
he is autistic. And we very much saw it as a chance to unlock support for him. So we went to a mainstream primary school, but they actually created an SEND hub within that school. So they put a lot of pupils from the region into that hub. And then they were able to actually have all of the um, all the pupils were able to actually then get extra support by the fact that they had a specialist teacher to support them in their first two years. And yeah, so that was sort of my background to everything. And a lot of it has come through sort of seeing the world through Freddie's eyes and to learn a lot of things about um, autism and, you know, just the support and adjustments that we need to make, um, whether it's in school or whether it's sort of in when we're out and about or or just sort of in around the house generally um, and just learning sort of tips and tricks and things. And from that, I've always had a, a real passion for sort of learning about things. So I've, I've really thrown myself into it to understand more and more about the way his mind works, what I can do to support him. Um, and it's been really interesting. Uh, I want to take you back to when Freddie was very young. When did you realise that they may be slightly different to other children of the same age? That's a good question. Yeah, it, it was probably when he was between about one and two, because we had sort of speech delay. And he was, as I say, he wasn't speaking till he was two and a half. Um, but even before that, we would go to, say, um, a, a, a Joe Jingles music club. And the other children would be happy to get up and to dance with others and to join in. And he would sit with us, held on to us, and didn't want to join in. And he quite enjoyed it when he was with us, but he didn't want to leave the comfort of being around us. And we were sort of sitting there, well, why won't he join in? We want him to just join in. Every other child is joining in in the group. Why, why can't he? And then it was sort of really, that was what it was all about for us when we sort of started to see little things like that where you think, okay, um, he's not doing the same thing as other children. What's going on? And before you had, had Freddie in did you have any understanding of autism? Had you ever come across it before? Were you aware I, I of knew it? of it. And that was probably about all I could say. And, um, you know, like most people, I think my only sort of real knowledge of autism was things like Rain Man, the film. And, yeah. you know, you just assume that that's the catch-all condition that everyone has. Um, and as I say, through the whole process, we were really well supported because they were saying, you know, this doesn't mean uh, everyone's the same. Everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses and, challenges and there is where they want to be where they can really excel um and that you know it, it is something which it's fascinating to learn and to understand that it's not doesn't need to be as limiting as people sort of sometimes portray it in the media as a, a real negative condition i think there's a lot of positives to be had from it yeah and the reason i ask is as well when you notice these differences in fred at birthday parties and, and soft play yeah. and wherever you went did you think, oh, you might be autistic, or did somebody come to you and say, oh, Freddie might be autistic, or how did you first think, you obviously realised he was different, when did you first think maybe he may be autistic? Well, it's really funny, because we didn't, until a social worker said to us, um, well, you know, we're a bit concerned about his speech, the fact he's not speaking, and, you know, he's two and a half and he's not speaking, we think he might be autistic, and I and we sort of went, well, no be something else you know won't be that or anything else like that um and that was sort of the starting point for it um and my wife was actually working on a television program and they were the television program was focusing a lot on autistic children in um a local care uh, in the schools and local authorities effectively and the health service so the local health service set up and 
she rang me one day and said, you know what? There's a lot of the traits which we see on the children on this program, which seem to be similar to Freddie. I wonder whether this social worker who was sort of saying, we think you might be autistic, may be right here. And then, as I say, the next time we had the conversation with them, they were saying, look, we want to get him tested, not because it makes any difference to what Freddie is or who he is or what he can do. It just means we can unlock some more funding for you if we can get that diagnosis. And that was the starting point for us all. Um, when Freddie started primary school, what was that like for him and you as a parent? Oh, as a parent, I can tell you, it was scary. <laughs> we were there and we're like, oh, God, he's going out of this nice sort of comfort bubble where we just got used to being in nursery, really. And now he was moving away from that to a, a school environment. I went to a settled day that they had for the pupils before he started. And I was there and there was another child. There was a circular bit of train track and Freddie was pushing the trains clockwise. And the other child was pushing the trains counterclockwise. And the two of them were like, whoa, no. <laughs> and they were both really upset about it. And I was like, oh, God, how is he going to cope with this? But for him, he coped remarkably well. He was just tired when he got there because, you know, a lot of the sort of overwhelming sensory environment, the masking, the, the work that he was doing to make himself settle in and fit in. But they supported him so well because one of the great things they did at his school was they had the SEND group were taken to a separate area for um, additional, whether it's speech and language therapy or OT or whatever it would be. But they also had two classes and they kept mixing the classes up. So some pupils would be in a small group reading. Some pupils might be in a small group outside playing. The SEND group might be in the SEND hub, but it didn't mark them out as different. So a lot of his peers didn't really notice anything about him. He was just another child within the class. And so he integrated really well within the group and the class that was there. And it was a brilliant, brilliant example of how to do things well. Because when we then had birthday parties and meetings and things with other parents, we'd say, you know, obviously Freddie's autistic, blah, blah, blah. And we'd want to talk to them about that and say, look, you know, just be aware of this. And this is what might have upset him. And he and they would be going, what? Because... They hadn't realised because their children hadn't picked up on anything on there. So for him, he had a really great time. He really enjoyed himself. And he came on an absolute load. And I mean, I remember when he started to talk and people were saying, oh, you wait. You want you This is other other parents of autistic children were saying, oh, you wait. When he starts talking, he'll never shut up. <laughs> and we thought, went, oh, that'll be brilliant. That'll be brilliant. We can't wait. And yet, yeah, now, and as, as Adam, Adam, <laughs> Adam might remember when when you start talking to him about any stats about whether it's football or cricket or anything like that he can fill you in on all the details and it's a real focus for him and he loves to sort of talk all the time about things like that um how does freddie find school does he find does he enjoy it and is there any challenges he faces at school generally yes he does enjoy it um there are a lot of challenges that happen um, but we we work with him and his school to make sure that we can get past those. So one of the things that we had a real issue around was the fact that we were moving. We've just moved from a primary setting to the um, high school. And you imagine going from a nice two form entry where he's in the same classroom each day with his same group of peers and he knows everyone and it's nice and calm and he knows what's happening. I'm sure you can relate to this time if you went, then went to a brand new environment with 1,500 pupils, you're moving room all the time, you don't know the rules, you don't know anyone, they're a lot bigger than you, 
I was like, oh my God. So we did a lot of work with him and his school around the fact that we had pictures of where he was going to be going. So his classrooms, his teachers, so we could actually then build visuals for him. So he could say, okay, this is where it's going to be. We also had a couple of times where we went in over the summer holidays when it was closed, there was no one else around. And we then got to walk around the school and the layout so that he could find, he could know where everything was and orientate himself. I mean, don't get me wrong, when he started, he still got lost all the time with all of his <laughs> friends as they were going from room to room. But that wasn't just him. That was everyone. Everyone got lost. And he sort of felt quite calm about it because it wasn't just him that was in that situation. The challenges he faces are um, sometimes it's the sensory environment, certainly the social skills around the fact that if you're in a playground and if, if, Freddie, if Freddie's playing a game with his friends and he's enjoying it, the next day he'll want to play the same game but they may want to play a different game. And Freddie then finds that difficult because he can then say, but I want to play King of the Hill or whatever it is they're playing at that, that particular game. There's one around a rock at the moment. I don't understand the rules of, but apparently he's about to become Prime Minister of the Rock. <laughs> but he, it's great because it's fantastic for us because he's making friends, they're developing their own games, they're finding things out. But equally, it is tricky because there's a lot of, uh, as I say, unspoken rules. I, I imagine that you're the same, Tom, that you can see if you've got a rule and you know what it is, it makes life really simple. But if you don't know what the rules are, it's quite hard sometimes to work out what am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah, I, I, I can I can relate to that because like, I'm the type of person where I like being told um, what to do beforehand for like certain tasks. Like yeah. I, I like it like... Um, said before because like i i can uh, relate to other autistic people who <clears throat> if they didn't get told beforehand it can be quite overwhelming definitely and, and freddie has and it sometimes struggles sometimes with homework because homework is supposed to be set on an online platform for them so each day he'll come home he'll open the platform and there's his homework but sometimes he gets um an email sent to him or somebody has said verbally you need to prepare prepare for this test or whatever and he hasn't taken that information in. So if it's in the different format, that can be a challenge for us. But we're working with the school to actually say, look, when you give him information, please give it to him in this format so that he can actually then process that and understand exactly what's going on. Does um, Freddie have an EHCP? Yes, he does, yes. And as a parent then, and obviously you're very knowledgeable about autism and you, you seem to know your stuff in a lot of research, how do you find the, the process of... Obviously, you meet with his teacher regularly. You meet with a senko regularly. You you'll meet with yep. maybe a paediatrician and and lots of professionals quite often. How do you, as a parent, find that in the process of going through these EHCP meetings and other meetings you have to go to? I I, I think the process is is needs a lot of improvement. I think would be the best way to to say it. Um, in that, um, sometimes people haven't got the time to create to devote to your child based on what you'd like so as a parent you're always constantly thinking you know what i know you're really stressed and really short of time but i don't care i want my child to have the support here whether it's support which is mandated within the ehcp or whether it's actually the support of let's write the ehcp properly because we've had a couple of times where we had them written and we've said well that's not actually true that's not the support he needs he needs this other support and we're also up against the fact that you end up with um, 
battles against local authorities because they haven't got the funding to support what they should do, what they need. So one of the um, one of the one of the issues that we really had around was um, um, OT support, occupational therapy, um, where Freddie was getting OT support and he was getting speech and language therapy support. And these were withdrawn in the primary school due to funding, basically. Um, and they were saying, well, he doesn't need this because he is reaching this standard. And we're saying, well, no, we still need speech and language therapy support here. And now he's gone to the secondary school. They have actually now reinstated the, 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 the SALT support because he is struggling with his English and his comprehension. I mean, when he knows what the question is, absolutely, he's flying and he, he loves it. But sometimes it can be really tricky for him to actually just understand what's being asked. Um, what is your relationship like with your son? Do you have any hobbies that you like to do together? Oh, we have, we have a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And um, we do a lot of really great things together. Um, he is a massive football and cricket fan. He will watch those all the time. And... So on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, we'll record match the day on Saturday night. We'll sit together on Sunday morning whilst mum's having a lie-in and we'll sit there and we'll watch it together. Um, and, you know, he's he goes to watch Cambridge United with myself. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big Cambridge fan. Freddie likes Cambridge, but he also is a big Liverpool fan because um, my, my wife's parents are both from Liverpool and are big Liverpool fans. They've taken him to... Anfield and bought him Liverpool kits and things so he's got he's got that and he's really into that but we love going to to play cricket um and I go along to the local club where he plays and I do a lot of work where you know just supporting the team whether it's scoring or driving people to the games and we go and watch cricket together so we've been to sort of T20 matches together with us and the 100 and he's really enjoyed himself at those games um I mean don't get me wrong it's a big you can imagine a big noisy environment. I remember when you went to to Wolves. I saw the pictures of of your trip to Wolves, and you looked like you're having a great time. But I imagine it was a bit of a a bit of a, an environment with all the sights and sounds and and people there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Like, luckily, it was still it was still like got that like vibrant uh, and sometimes loud and um, the Molyneux. But because of the sensory room, it. It was like a nice blend of like not too loud, not too quiet. So you still got the overall nice uh, and um, football experience, but like it wasn't too overwhelming. Yeah, because when we go to football, Freddie loves to be in the crowd, but he'll put his noise cancelling headphones on because it just gets too much for him. Um, and sometimes he'll sit and just he'll he'll want to watch the scores on the phone for a little while because he can then tell me quite proudly that such and such a team are now one nil up, and that moves him to seventh in the table. And, or whatever it would be that's, that's going on. Um, Richard, with autism, sometimes autistic people find uh, emotions quite challenging. Yeah. Um, reading emotions and also their own emotions. I imagine going to sport brings out a lot of emotions, especially sport in Cambridge. Yes. <laughs> in the 90 minutes, you can be ecstatic that you've gone 1-0 up and then yeah. you know, a player gets a red card, so you become angry, and then a team scores on the last minute and you lose, or you get smashed 5-1 by Shrewsbury. How does... You bring it up, didn't you? you have to <laughs> How does Freddie cope with uh, these emotions that happen in life, but also in sport? He finds it difficult. Um, you know, it, it, he was in 
floods of tears at the, the Shrewsbury game that you mentioned um, because the Cambridge were well beaten and, you know, they're not having the greatest of seasons. So he's really, really down on that. And he gets very nervous watching games. So if he's watching Liverpool on the telly, he's nervous that they're going to let one in or even if they're 2-0 up against um, Real Madrid, he thinks, oh, God, they're going to let in five goals or whatever. As it turns out, sometimes he's right. Um, <laughs> but um, he's he, he finds it really tricky. And sometimes we have to actually then just have a bit of a time out, come away and just just calm down, just to recalibrate. You know, mentioned, you mentioned there the the um, sensory room at Molyneux and sort of areas like that are really great because sometimes, as I say, he'll want to put his headphones on and just look at something on his phone or look at football scores or whatever it would be just to have a break from the overwhelming feelings that he's got at the particular game. Um, but no, generally, he's really great in terms of going to sporting events and he really gets bound up in everything and certainly you know the moments when something great happens he's absolutely ecstatic and I mean <laughs> yesterday when he came out from cricket and we put the radio on in the car and uh, Liverpool were 3-0 up against Man United he was instantly ringing mum to say oh my god can you believe what's <laughs> happening and so yeah so he he's he's been reliving that one this morning quite a lot brilliant uh, okay uh, has there been any times that Freddie has had a really difficult time and had a meltdown? And how best is it to support him? Yeah, it's been it's, it's been a few times, um, and we still we still work on that all the time. And I would say that the the ways that we support Freddie is a visual timeline is a real key thing for him. I mentioned when he was non-verbal, he was given pecs. Um, a pecs book and that's an absolute godsend because you could actually see what was coming so okay we're going to have milk and then we're going to go to the park or whatever it would be and he could see what was coming that calmed down a lot of the anxiety and that was really helping him um but he still has moments where he gets sort of really upset about things and i'll give you um an example of that we went to the first ever um football match i took him to we met friends outside the ground that he knew and he was in floods of tears because at that stage, he was only three or four. I didn't really understand enough about sensory overloads that can happen in these busy environments. I was just like, okay, right, come on, come with us. We'll be all right. And we went and sat down in the stand and he was still crying and really upset and everything. And to just try and self-regulate him, I gave him my phone and he was looking at cartoons on my phone and was just trying to calm himself down and everything. And it was just trying to find coping strategies to help him in those sort of situations. And as it turned out, the thing that helped us the most then was the fact that a corner was swung over to the far post, the centre-back headed it in and they went 1-0 up. Everyone's <laughs> cheering and singing and he's really happy. Um, but yeah, so that was the, you know, and you can't rely on that for every game. Um, and, you know, I mentioned obviously visuals are really important for Freddie. So the, the, the reason I've developed what I've developed, which is a um, an app called Picture Path, which is a digital visual timeline so you can actually create a visual timeline for your day so you can see everything that's going to happen on your day and it sits on your phone or your tablet and then you can just tick things off as you do them so okay and you know we've been to the park tick right we're now going to walk to the cafe okay tick that off tick that off and you can go through everything whether it's you're going to a sporting event or whether you're going to go to the park or whether you're you know just doing things around the house and that really helps freddie a lot because 
if he can see what's coming, it just helps to reduce the stress and anxiety. Because you you were talking before, Tom, about you know how you don't like unusual things or strange things to happen that you're not aware that's going to happen. So the same with Freddie. If I can actually then give him something which he can see, it's like, right, okay, I can look at this and process this in my own speed. So I can see, okay, we're going to go to um, the cricket practice and then we're going to get in the car and then we're going to go to, um, you know, have a pizza or whatever it would be. So he can then see what's going on and then it's not a surprise and it doesn't then cause him anxiety because he can look and see. Do you get anxious, Tom, when you can't, when you don't know what's coming? uh occasionally yeah like the younger me would have got like more anxious about it but like i don't get as like anxious and agitated about change of plans anymore because i tend to uh like not only if i realize that's more uh common in life anyway but also it can also happen in like work environments as well yeah absolutely and that's 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 a key thing isn't it it's a key skill to learn is that yeah things will change but it's not always bad but if we can reduce that stress and anxiety around change then that's what we're going to try and do and so we're going to come up well got a question about picture pass we'll come on a little bit more about that in a second but i want to so you prepare as, as rightly you should do fairly for what's going to happen in the day and you might say things like right school home cricket practice mm-hmm. but then it rains and cricket cricket's cancelled Sometimes change you can't do anything about. You, yeah. you can prepare Freddie for this is happening, but the car breaks down, the cricket it rains, the fire alarm goes off. How yeah. does Freddie cope with them situations that are just sprung on him? Um, it depends. It, some days is better than others. Um, some days, um, he was very upset in school the other day because there was a fire alarm and he missed his favorite his favorite lesson. And he'd be looking forward to it. And the fire alarm happened. They missed most of the lesson. So he came home and he was a bit upset about the fact that it happened. But other times I'll say to him, right, okay, you know, we were planning to do this. This has happened. We're now going to do this. And so, and he's like, right, okay, I can cope with that and and go with that. So it's hard to say, Adam. I don't think that that every day is is clear how how an event will happen. So we always try to reduce surprises as much as possible. Um, you know, sometimes we might say to Freddie, there will be a surprise, something will happen at this event and we're going to do something fun and he'll be excited about that because it's going to be a fun event that's going to be happening. He doesn't know what it is, but you know what? Most people seem to sort of quite enjoy surprises. But other times there'll be where we don't want Freddie to have too many surprises happening to him because it might be a difficult environment or whatever. So we always try to pre-warn him. Um, and one of the great tools we were taught by um, the the support workers that we had from the from when he was young was to give Freddie a warning about things. So if I say to Freddie, okay, come off your Xbox, it's dinner time, that will cause a, a distress for him. Whereas if I say to him, okay, dinner will be in 10 minutes, dinner will be in five minutes, dinner will be in one minute, okay, it's now time for dinner. He's okay because he's had the pre-warning and he knows what's coming. Um, you recently got diagnosed with autism yourself. Can yes. you tell us about that, please, and why you went for your own diagnosis? Yeah, it, it was sort of I was going through a lot of the work that I was doing with Freddie, um, and I said to my wife, "You know what? I can relate totally to a lot of these things that they're talking about about change, about the way you look at the world, the way that you see things." And I thought, you know, 
this would help me to make a lot of sense of things because there are things that I might struggle with and find difficult. But is it because, you know, sometimes over the years you think, oh, well, am I just being a bit stupid here? Am I just missing things? Or is there something, you know, that's a bit different? So, yeah, so that was the, the starting point for it. And I spoke to my doctors and I said, look, you know, my son's autistic. I know that there's a large um, correlation between an autistic child and one of the parents being autistic. And I thought, well, you know, I'd like to know for sure whether that's the reason why I think the way I do about some things, why some things might upset me more than I think they should do. And so that was the, the process I started off. And I went down there and spoke to the doctors and they put me onto the waiting list. And there's a quite a long waiting list for adult diagnosis. Um, and then I went through and had all the assessments and everything. And they said, yeah, we think you are as well. And um, that for me made a lot of sense, helped me make a lot of sense of a lot of things, if that makes if I'm talking sense, um, <laughs> is, is that I, I felt that, you know, sometimes you have, um, sometimes, I, you know, I have a situation where I may struggle to understand what's going on or to, to find it a difficult situation, whereas other people might find that really easy. But equally, I think it's not, a, I, I don't want to think of it as a, as a negative thing because I don't. I, I, I think there's a lot of real benefits for me because there's a lot of things that I do that aren't intuitive for other people and I find them really easy. So, um, for instance, I, I, I give you an example of, you know, seeing things in terms of sort of patterns and shapes and the way things fit together and move and, and everything. I can hold a lot of information that way and can actually plan and, and, and pull things together. Um, and also the ability to focus really deeply on something so if there's a, a problem or an issue and i need it to be fixed i've always found through my working life that i've always just gone right okay i can real have real tunnel vision and focus um and i'm sure that's all due to my autism and that's you know part of me and it's a great part uh how has receiving your own diagnosis helped you as a person and as a dad yeah it, it has helped because you know, number one i can say to freddie you know what this isn't you this isn't just you, you've got this thing, or this is, you know, I don't, don't want to say it as a thing, because I know some people sort of say a person with autism and you're learning that it's just part of you, you're an autistic person, you know, and it's just not something you carry around with you in a bag <laughs> you, you've got with you. It, it, it's actual part of you. But able to say to him, yeah, I'm the same. I find that really difficult. And he can see the fact that through my adult life, I've learned to, you know, how to, how to, react in social situations you know uh, the the fact that a lot of people talk about autistic people finding eye contact being really hard and it's something i can struggle with from time to time but learning tricks that if you look at the bridge of someone's nose it's actually uh, people can't tell the difference between eye contact to look at the bridge of someone's nose so i'll look at the bridge of the nose of people a lot of the time and people then think you know i'm fitting in i'm doing what people expect which is to give people eye contact i'm not but I found a way around it. And being able to share with Freddie, you look, yeah, you know what? I've been through this as well. And he could see that I've been through that and, you know, I've had, you know, a great life and, and uh, we've we've been able to be quite successful and to do lots of things. It's really great because I think it gives him that feeling that, you know what, this doesn't need to be a hindrance. It's just part of me. The same way that some people, you know, might have, 
you know, you know might might walk on crutches doesn't make them you know any any less able mentally. Um, you know, I was, I was watching the um, the Chris Packham documentary. Um, have you have you seen that? I haven't seen it now. No, uh, it, it, it's really good. I recommend it. Recommend watching that. And on on it's on the BBC iPlayer at the moment. Yeah. And I was watching that, and they were talking on there about um, how you have um, you know they had and um, Ken Bruce, the the Radio Two DJ, that uh, he had has a son who is totally non-verbal and yet he types on a keypad which then speaks for him and the things he's saying through that keypad are brilliant absolutely they're profound they're really amazing and yet in these saying yet we have people who dismiss him as having nothing to say or nothing to think or no brain power because of that and i think it's absolutely fascinating when you have um when you have that sort of ability. Um, and I, I think it's it's something which we all need to shout about a lot more. You know what? People yeah. have got all these skills. You might need just a bit of adjustment on something. You might find one small part of it difficult, but all the rest of it you can thrive with and you even have insights that are just not matched by anyone else. So I, I think it's a real blessing myself. Yeah, definitely. I was watching the other day... Um... I actually saw on Gogglebox, but I can't remember what the show was called, but there was a, a girl playing the piano um, in, a, I think, in a shopping centre or somewhere, and she was autistic, and you want to stereotype somebody, but looking at her, you wouldn't have thought she'd be able to play the piano to the, yeah. how amazing she did. She sat down, and she, on it, it was unbelievable. I don't know what she played, but it was just incredible. And watching her play, then all of a sudden, everyone was gathering around the piano and was watching her, and she was non-verbal, and um, so I only watched it on Gogglebox. I didn't actually know much about the story, but watching her play the piano was just incredible. And so it's being, lots of people would never have thought that she'd be capable of that or was, would have the ability to do that. But again, as you said, it, sometimes it's people are very naive or lack understanding. And um, just because you have autism or you look a certain way or you think a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do certain things. And it's nice to see lots of people who are hopefully breaking down the stigma to that and the stereotype. Definitely. And also it works the other way as well, Adam. I, I, I've, you know, I've been autistic all my life and yet people don't think I'm autistic because I don't fit the cliche or the stereotype. You know, I mentioned Rain Man and that, that people sort of tend to hold a lot in their heads. Yeah. Well, you, I did, you, I, I've known you now for a little while and you told me they're weakly autistic. I had no idea you're autistic. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I'm glad it's helped you as a person, as a parent, and a yeah. Just just make sure you understand a bit more about things, and you think, well, okay, you know, that's just me. That's just yeah. part of me being me. All right, okay, I, you know, and I need to just accept that I'm going to sometimes act that way and not beat myself up for the fact that I'm doing it. Um, so you very much surrounded yourself with autism. Now, you've got an autistic son, you're autistic yourself, and your job is is to support autistic um, people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about then kind of your job and what you do and how that helps? Yeah, well, it all started about because, as I say, Freddie found a visual to be just so useful. It was the number one tool that we were given that helped him. But you had to print and laminate each image and then put a Velcro sticker on the back of it. It takes ages. On, on your desk or your timeline. You, you know exactly what we're talking about. And the trouble comes when you lose an, an image or, you know, 
I had a, a, a very annoying day where we had one where the corner delaminated and bent, and Freddie <laughs> kept giving it back to me, going broken, broken, broken. I was like, please just accept this. No. So I had to print a whole page just for this one image, and I thought there must be an easier way of doing this. Is there an app that would do it? And I went to an SEN conference and I said, look, to all the teachers, look, all the apps I found are American with all the issues of trying to explain that M-O-M means mum. You know, it's not really ideal. And um, or they were really expensive or they were difficult to use. Some of them were all three, which takes a bit of doing. And they then um, somebody said to me, you should make one. You know, and, and in the words of Top Gear, I'll do that. How hard can it be? <laughs> and um, it turned out to be a lot trickier than we thought. But I've worked with some really great people to develop Picture Path. And we went and uh, spoke to a company and they said, well, it sounds great. We want to invest in this. But if we're going to make this, it's got to be something that's not just for you and Freddie. It's got to work for other people. So we spoke to the National Autistic Society. We had teachers, parents, SENCOs, everyone get involved so we could build a Picture Path app, which would work for parents, would work for teachers, would work for individuals as well. Um, and then from that, we've then moved on to creating visitor guides for venues as well and where can where can people find more information have you got a social media or website yeah or? yeah we're, we're on um social media um at, on twitter facebook linkedin you can find us on on all of those on instagram as well um you can download the app it's a free download from the apple and the google play stores so just search for picture path in there um on twitter we're at my pitch path uh, i think we're at my pitch path as well on facebook but um, if you look for, for that on there, you can find us. Um, and yeah, so we've, we've got websites and as well. We've got a website as well, um, which people can go and find more information out. Again, if you just Google Picture Path, it tends to, to come up. Um, and yeah, we just really want to work with as many people as we can. Um, and that's the reason why, you know, we know this helps people. And the more people who know about it, the more hopefully we can then help individual lives you know, whether it is just some people will use it every single day for every event. Other people say, look, you know, we're going to a new place, a stressful environment. We need to have a guide for that. Whatever works for you, you can use it. And as I say, I think a lot of autistic people struggle when you change things on them. And this helps you to actually become prepared and know what's going to happen. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Definitely check it out. Thank you so much for chatting to us today, Richard. It has been great to hear your thoughts and feelings about autism. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And I, can I just say also, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I think you guys do great work. Some of the interviews are brilliant. And I've said this before that to other people that this isn't a podcast that I think, oh, it's great because there are autistic people do it. I just think it's a genuinely a great podcast. And you get some real laughs with people and you get stories and information that I've never heard from before from people. So hats off to you guys. I think you're doing great stuff and please keep going. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. I'm joined today with Temple Grandin. Hi Temple, how are you today? Doing just fine. Good. I really appreciate you joining us. I know it's, it's, it's early there in, in Colorado, so thank you so much for joining us so early. Yep, no, it's early. <laughs> Um, so you wanted a little chat about autism and your experiences and some of the advice that I know you give to lots of people when you do your, your speeches and some of your teaching. So I wanted to have a little chat to you about autism and some of your experience, if, if that's okay. Well, I understand that a lot of the listeners out there are parents of teenage kids. And yeah. uh, 
course, autism is a big spectrum going from a fully verbal kid doing well in school, maybe a fully verbal kid getting bullied in school, just somebody who's nonverbal, big spectrum. But one of the biggest problems I'm seeing is we're not getting those teenagers out doing enough life skills, things like uh, shopping. I'm seeing too many fully verbal teenagers that never gone in a store and bought something, laundry, cooking. You've got to learn life skills. I'm... Um, the other thing I got to start thinking about is learning how to work. And that would start out with doing volunteer jobs, maybe around 11 years old at a church, a community group, something where somebody outside the family is the boss. Um, because I'm also seeing some real problems with learning working skills. Because all the time I have grandparents coming up to me and they discover they're on the autism spectrum when the kids get diagnosed. Yeah. But that grandfather had learned or grandmother had learned working skills really young with things like delivering newspapers. Now in the U.S., that's disappeared completely. Um, but we got to find substitutes for those paper routes where their job's on a schedule outside the home. So do you think then, because schools are under a lot of pressure to deliver a curriculum and, and deliver English and math and science. Yeah, that's right. Think schools need to have a more vocational approach and change the way that they teach children. Well, there's two things. There's there's life skills that everybody has to learn. And otherwise, you're not going to be able to live on your own. Um, but then um, when it comes to vocational stuff, in my book on visual thinking, there's a certain segment of the autistic population where a skilled trade would be the place would be a good place for them. But there's others where it would not be appropriate. I'm a big proponent of getting of letting students try all different kinds of things. And then they can start seeing what they're good at what they're bad at. But actually, there's a huge shortage right now of high-end skilled trades. How are we going to keep the water systems running, the electrical systems running? Recently, I went to a great big fancy lab with three floors worth of um, mechanical equipment on it. Uh, without very high-end skilled trades, that lab will not function, period. And so for certain um, individuals, uh, it'd be the way to go. For, for the and in my book, Visual Thinking, I discuss kind of three kinds of minds. There's the object visualizer like me who thinks in pictures, who's horrible at higher math. And we'd be really good at a high-end skilled trade. In fact, when I was out all the time in the in the beef factories, I, I worked with people that owned metal fabrication shops that I'm positive were autistic. Then you got the mathematically inclined kid that should be going into computer programming, maybe higher mathematics. But I am concerned that artificial intelligence may replace some of the basic programming jobs. Then you have the autistic kid that's the verbal thinker that knows every fact about, you know, soccer games or some other thing like that. Um, they might be good as a history teacher. So the autistics can come in different kind of specialized skills. Um, yeah, but I think the, there's a tendency to think that the vocational is the lesser form of intelligence. I can tell you right now, I worked out on big, big construction projects, and it is a different type of intelligence. Yeah, and and have the water work and electric power work might be a really good idea not to stick your nose up at it. <laughs> and I've, I've watched your film as well, and you've, from a very young age, you went straight into the world of work your your mum pushed you into the world of work oh yeah she she um she got me this stuff was just on the neighborhood when i was 13 she just talked to a local seamstress who was working out of her home and got me a job in the summer two afternoons a week taking apart dresses and hand hemming dresses 
That was just something that was just done in the neighborhood with a lady that worked out of her house. You know, we need to be doing you know, more of those kinds of things. And then the instant the kid's legal age for safe retail, they need to be doing a retail job. But I want to emphasize, we've got to watch about the multitasking. Don't put them on the chaotic takeout window. Also, individuals on the spectrum, have a, all of them have a real hard time with sequential tasks. So if you just yak it out to them verbally, they're not going to remember. They've got to write it down like a pilot's checklist. They need an external working memory. And that will solve a lot of problems. They say, well, I already showed him how to work the dishwashing machine. Is he stupid? Or, or some other thing. Write down the steps. The other big problem I'm seeing is people are not differentiating where an entry-level job like bagging groceries is a suitable career. And somebody ought to go way beyond bagging groceries. That's another big problem I'm seeing. And I do a lot of talks to big businesses all the time. In fact, I gave a talk to the lab, uh, research laboratory place. And I made it very simple. We need the skills. We need the skills. Right now, if you want to buy poultry processing equipment in the U.S., it's all coming from Holland. Because in a lot of European countries, in ninth grade, you can go university route or tech route. The state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine is from Holland. It's not from the U.S. And it goes back to the educational system. There's a link here. I visited this lab. I walked through three floors of equipment, complicated equipment, uh, which is going to need very high-end skilled trades to keep it operating. I'm not talking about putting floor tiles down. That's just <laughs> hard work. Definitely. It sounds like a wave of concrete, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> and do you think as well, because times have changed from, from obviously when you were younger and when you were working as well, and now there's a lot more technology, um, children on iPads and watching TV and on computer games a lot more. Do you think that's had a, a negative in, impact on the autistic community? Well, I'm not suggesting banning any of these things, but it needs to be limited. Same way for me, TV was one hour a day during the week, two hours a day on the weekends, and then you had to get out and do other things. And I'm not seeing these kids getting fabulous video game animation jobs and things like that. That's not happening. And and um, for us visual thinkers, uh, in some states in the U.S., I wouldn't be able to graduate from high school. But I worked with people who barely graduated with high school that were patenting and selling complicated hydraulic equipment that they invented. This is, but you see, that's not everybody on the autism spectrum. I want to make it very clear. That's yeah. object visualizers. Discuss that in my book, Visual Thinking. Object visualizers. Then you take your mathematical kids. They might be good at physics, you know, uh, quantum computing. Yeah, they're going to need lots of higher math for that. And a lot of the people that work on that stuff are probably on the autism spectrum. And they think in patterns, not pictures. And then you've got the um, the word thinkers that love uh, all the facts about their favorite sport or movie or some other thing. You see, most regular people are just uh, mixtures. But when you get a fully verbal autistic person, they tend to be more specialized, really good at one thing, really terrible at something else. And, okay, this is Autism Acceptance Week. I'm going to make it very plain. Same thing I tell business leaders. You need the skills. I talk to steel company. You want your steel mill to function? You need these skills. It's just that simple. You want to build your next poultry processing plant or whatever? You need these skills. Yeah. And the problem is educators don't understand anything about industry. 
No, and it's it's great the work you're doing. And how do you find do you, businesses kind of listen to you and and put the things that you're suggesting in place? Well, I, I think some of them have. I've talked to a lot of businesses ranging from a steel company, computer companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, banking. Uh, some of the fully very verbal oriented autistics. Some of them are working for a major bank, very successful in sales of specialized financial products because they're recognized for their detailed information on fancy financial products that I don't even understand. Another place where that uh, type has been very successful is selling cars because they'll know all the details of every car that's out there on the lot. Yeah, very true. And so I call that specialized retail. And the verbal autistic, that's not the visual thinker, not the mathematician, specialized, highly specialized retail is one area where they've been successful. And then what about your experience in work? Because I know sometimes autistic individuals find social situations quite difficult, speaking in front of people quite difficult, working as a team quite difficult. How did you find working in the world of work and what strategies did well, you I, use? I, um, and I did my first uh, public speaking in graduate school, I panicked and walked out. And then one thing I learned is you got to either have really good slides. Of course, back when I started, it was 35 millimeter slides in a Kodak carousel. <laughs> um, and so having really good slides, you couldn't share them around. Having really good slides was hard. But I had really good slides. Or if you don't have slides, then I need to make notes kind of like in, in bullet points of the things I'm going to talk about. Now, the other thing is a lot of my work I've done freelance. And I have found on team projects, the best way for me to work is to have a well-defined part of the project that is mine. Okay, I will design this part of the project. I'll stop at this point, like in a beef plant, for example, right here at this point on the on the rail. I, my responsibility ends there. Uh, or if we're doing an animal welfare document, I'll say, well, I'll cover you know, this part of this part of it. You want it in this format, and I'll get it done by a certain date. I just say, I like homework, and I like well-defined homework. And then the other thing I've learned on team projects, when some of the team member makes a mistake, you don't rub their nose in it. Um, you uh, just correct it and, because you got to get the document out. Brilliant. That's um, stuff that I've learned. I want to talk a little bit about autism masking as well. Autism okay. masking is quite prevalent, especially in, in girls. Can you tell us a little bit about masking? And did you or do you ever mask your autism? How do you kind of feel about that? Well, as I was working out there with the meat industry in the 80s and 90s, I never discussed autism. Being a woman was 10 times the barrier that autism ever was. Yeah, I can imagine. So I had to make myself very good at what I did. And the way I sold projects is I simply showed my work off. Show off the drawings, show off um, pictures of jobs. That's how I That's how I sold my projects. I just showed off the work. Um, you know, there's a kind of a blurry old picture of uh, one of my designs. And now when, it, now when it comes to the kind of stuff I can't do, there's a kind of rapid chit-chat conversation that people do. Yeah. Where it's almost rhythmic. My processor speed's too slow to follow that. If I'm in a noisy environment, I can't hear. And, and uh, okay, to be social in that kind of situation, I, I, I end up looking at the TVs in the, in the restaurant kind of just tune out and people describe being very very tiring doing that because I have to really, really work hard to pay attention. But on the other hand, just some business social. Yeah. You can learn how to do that. That was taught to all kids in my generation 
things like just, you know, recognizing people saying, you know, shaking hands, uh, you know, that's not hard to do. And I talked to several people in an adult support group. And one lady said, well, if it gets to where I'm exhausted afterwards, then that's masking. I'm not going to do it. See, I think there's different degrees of different degrees of masking. On the other hand, you just can't be a rude, filthy, dirty slop. <laughs> yeah. You just you just can't be. And it's okay to be eccentric. But I remember uh, going to a conference in, in the UK years and years ago, and this autistic guy walked up to me at a convention. I didn't know him. And he just said, who the swear word are you? <laughs> I'm going, really? That's how you greet me? That's I won't say the swear word, but it was not yeah. a swear word. <laughs> comes up to me and says, who the swear word are you? There's no excuse for that. No. You mentioned that when the, you're doing the chit chat that you struggle and you I can't you follow it. My processor speed is too slow. So yeah, you mentioned it too slow, but is it, do you think your processor speed is too fast? Because I know, I know one thing with autism is you're taking in maybe the sound of the, the lights and the sound of the things outside and the lights flickering and all the things around you because you're processing things, too many things, too fast. Well, you see, that's part of the problem. And when I talk to businesses about making the office more inclusive, the first thing I talk about is flickering on LED lights. Okay, I just talked to this one place. They were building a new building. I said, please, please don't put in LED lights in that building that flicker. Single most important thing. That's also important for head injuries. People with head injuries can have problems with that. That's not just an autistic thing. And brand new building, let's not do that. Do you think getting that diagnosis temple helped your helped your parents to support you? Well, what helped was getting into the good early intervention program that the neurologist you know referred my mother to. That was extremely important. I can't emphasize enough the importance of early intervention. You know, what I'm kind of seeing, you've got the kids where there's a definite speech delay. You know, kids with a speech delay, you've got to get into really good early intervention. Then you got the kids where there's no speech delay, but used to be the old Asperger's. And they're getting diagnosed maybe eight or nine years old because they have no friends. And, um, uh, and then you've got, you know, individuals that remain very severe. You know, we've got a spectrum that's going from Elon Musk to somebody who never learns to dress themselves. Brilliant. Thank you, Temple. Thank you so much for, for that. Really, really appreciate it. Wish you all okay. the best and have a lovely, lovely day. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Okay, great. Yeah, bye. Hi, Alison. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us for as part of our autism special episode. Very happy to be here. Anyways, my name's Alyssa and this is... Jacob. Anyways, we're just going to have a little chat and talk about a bit about what you do. I'm going to... Um, you ready for... Ready? I'm ready. And at any point, if you want to ask us any questions, feel free to. Thank you. Okay. For this episode, we want to speak to a range of people who are, are linked to autism, such as autistic individuals, parents with, of autistic children, and professionals working with autistic, the autistic community. And we are very honoured to speak to you, Alison, because you fall into all three of those categories, don't you? I do, yeah. So I'm autistic. Um, I was diagnosed only last year at the age of 38. Um, I have two autistic children and I also work uh, with the outreach service to support um, mm. children with a range of needs in mainstream settings but um, yeah a lot of those are 
uh, autistic young people. Mm. Can we start off by talking about you as a mum? Please, can you tell us a little bit about your children? What are they like and what are they... Personalities. Personalities. Yeah, so um, my two boys are amazing little people. Um, They're both... Uh, very gentle, very loving little people. Um, so similar in that way, but very different in other ways. Um, my eldest is, he's got an amazing sense of humour, really silly sense of humour, so we do a lot of laughing. Mind you of anyone. And yeah, my youngest is really curious about the world um yeah real little explorer reminds me of someone else i know as well <laughs> reminds me of indiana jones yeah yeah so, it's a bit like indiana jones you're both both your kids have autism correct yes they're both autistic yeah Lucky them, I'm the only autistic kid in my family. <laughs> all my sisters are all all non-autistic. Well, we're a pretty neurodivergent household, because obviously I'm autistic, my two boys are autistic, and my husband uh, highly suspects that he's ADHD. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> my brother is the same thing. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> mm. When did you first think your children may be autistic and what sort of things did you notice notice for you to think for for to think they may be? Um, okay, so I think it was so with my eldest, um, it's probably around the age of eighteen months to two years old when I first started thinking about it. But a lot of the things he did I was like, yeah, well, I used to do that. (laughs) But obviously that's because I'm also autistic. Um, So, yeah, um, things like he enjoyed, like, spinning around in circles and he really enjoyed uh, sort of flapping um, bits of paper and books and things like that. Oh, yeah, we know people like that, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. My parents basically knew I was autistic before I was diagnosed as well. You know how most babies cry to be picked up? Yeah. Because they want attention. I did the opposite. I wanted to be put down. Right, right. Are you quite touch sensitive? I used to be, I think. Yeah. I'm okay with with people people hugging me and things like that that now. But back then... Yeah. Much. Yeah, and I think that's you know pretty typical, isn't it, that our sensory profiles change over time? Mm-hmm. Because when I was um, a child, I would say that my sensory sort of uh, needs were more significant or more obvious um, than they are sort of now as an adult, but um, kind of different as well. So I think yeah, I think they can change over time. What was the Process. process like for you as a parent when your children were getting a diagnosis diagnosis um i think i was i was lucky um in that the process was really quite smooth um 
felt like quite, you know, a fairly quick process. I felt informed throughout the whole thing. Um, obviously, I, I understood the process, having been a professional sort of within the system as well. That helped. That would probably help you spot things quick, pretty quick too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I was lucky in those ways. Um, I know it's harder for other parents, perhaps, who have children that don't present in more kind of external ways um, in terms of, you know, if they've got children that are masking, for example, it can be harder, uh, a harder process for those parents to get the diagnosis for their child. Um, so, yeah, my, my experience was, was pretty good. How important is it for you and your family to have a good routine and structure? That's, yeah, that's a big question, I think, because um, personally, for me, uh, I find that I need more structure and routine when um, I'm feeling particularly anxious or overwhelmed or if, you know, um, kind of there's other things going on mm. in my life that are making me more anxious mm. or overwhelmed. So uh, it depends upon the, the context. Um, so... Generally speaking, I don't actually need that much of a structured routine, but uh, there's sort of times of the day that I do like more structured routines, like in the mornings, for example. Um, But for me, the only way that routines work for me is if they're self-imposed. Like if someone gives me a routine, that won't work for me. Um, And so with my children, I sort of recognise quite early on that with my eldest, if I were to put a routine in place for him, um, a structured routine, uh, that actually he would become hyper-fixated on that and that would create more anxiety for him because I know that that's how I can be. So um, I purposefully didn't put those structured routines in place and actually he doesn't rely upon those um, very much. Mm. Um, you recently got diagnosis as autistic. Why did you decide to go for a diagnosis, and what are the progress process process like for you as an adult? Yeah, um, yeah. So I I got my diagnosis last year, um, but I kind of self-identified as autistic probably for a couple of years prior to that. Um, I kind of realised from speak, mainly from sort of speaking to other autistic women who had been late diagnosed, um, and I realised that I shared a lot of experiences with them and I could relate to them. Um, And it kind of put a lot of my life, made a lot of my life make sense. Um, A lot of my challenges that I've had throughout my life, but also... Um, my strengths as well it put those into context you know because I'm autistic Um, I can do certain things better than other people um, or the way I think uh, is quite different and yeah it kind of all made that make sense and the process for me was a really positive one Um, I was very lucky in that um, I was able to sort of Uh, choose people who had a very good knowledge and understanding of autistic women um, and 
you know, I was congratulated at the end for being autistic rather than, you know, being told I've got this thing that, you know, um, in a medical kind of way, which I don't think is very helpful sometimes for people. Yeah, sometimes. Some doctors, I think, view autism as a type of illness that can't go away. Yeah, I think I think being told, being diagnosed by a doctor and being told you have autism is a very different experience to being, t- you know, sort of being told, congratulations, you're autistic. Um, and, yeah, I think kind of having a positive self-identity around being autistic is hugely important. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree with Alyssa on that because it's like you, they think you got a disease, but you don't. It's just some. It's just the way you are. It's just who it's you just are. Just the way your personality is, and exactly. you can't change that. Exactly. And why would you want to as well? Yeah. Do you wish you got diagnosed when you were a child? And if you did, would that have helped you at school? Yeah, this is a tricky question because in a lot of ways I feel really lucky in that I identified that I was autistic myself um, at a time where it was, you know, I felt positive about it and it was it was a, a positive experience. Um, had I been diagnosed as a child, I don't know if I would have taken it so positively. However, I did really struggle um, particularly sort of with my mental health um, and anxiety in sort of high school. Um, And so I do kind of question, had I have known before that point, you know, could I have avoided all those struggles throughout my teenage years and early Mm. 20s? Realistically, though, when you're a kid, you can't choose if you ever get, when when you get diagnosed. You can ask your parents and tell them you think there's something up. Yeah, yeah. But it's up to them, really. Yeah. If they say that you're fine, there ain't much you can do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It is in the hands of of parents, isn't it? And when I was a child, you know, girls just weren't seen as autistic. You know, people just thought it was a... Um, hello, what are our genders again? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, um, so, yeah, we've come a long way since then. But I just, I would never have had a diagnosis as a child because um, I'm asked a lot. And yeah, girls just weren't. It didn't. People didn't think girls could really be autistic at that point. I don't know if that's sexist or down or downright weird. Both. <laughs> <laughs> They're a bit like both. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I want to ask you about identity language. Can you explain to us a bit about what it it is? And what would the autistic community prefer to use identity first or not? Yeah, so it's up to personal preference, isn't it? I mean, I I prefer to say I'm autistic. um, And that's because it's very much who I am. It's not something that is attached to me. Um, You know, there's not this thing called autism that, like, I have, like I've got a cold or I've got a flu. Um, it's who I am, it's how I think, mm-hmm. it's how I interact with the world, so therefore I am autistic. Everything about me is autistic, um, and I wouldn't have that any other way. Um, so from what I know from the autistic community, uh, 
there's the most recent sort of research and surveys um, that have been done to gain those views from autistic people is that over 90% prefer identity first, so they prefer to say they're autistic rather than a person with autism. Um, but what do you guys think? Um, well, I personally think I should think I should, I want, I'm going to say it loud and proud. <laughs> so are you autistic or yep. a person with I'm autistic. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right, the only one. <laughs> yeah. I have it as well, but a little bit. So do you say you're autistic or do you say you have autism? I just have, Either. A, li- I just have a little bit of autism. Like, I don't got a lot of it. I'm a bit, I'm mostly normal. <laughs> just say, say, just say you're unique. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> just unique Problem solved. anyways um autism made making is very common especially masking that says masking masking (laughs) in very common especially in girls can you tell us a little bit about that and do you ever make your Mask. mask your autism yeah, so masking is like this really, really complex thing. Um, and people kind of assume that it's just about people trying to fit in and it's so much more than that. Um, it's both something that's done consciously and unconsciously, so people don't even realise they're doing it. Um, and, yeah, I've masked my entire life um, and it's only since sort of realising that I'm autistic, that I've started to unpick that mask and, um, yeah, try to mm-hmm. unmask. Rip it, rip it off and throw it in the nearest bin. Exactly. Or in a nearest fur- in furnace, furnace, whichever <laughs> comes first. <laughs> yeah, but obviously, if you're autistic, you don't need to be normal, just be yourself, pretty yeah. much it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But it depends very much upon mm. the people around you, doesn't it? Because yeah, it ticks me off that some people treat autism like it's some sort of disease or yeah. and something to be or avoided. It, or yeah. it's a bit like um, a cold or this and that, but it's not. Mm. Yeah. Like it's not contagious. This is going to hurt you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where would we be without autistic people in the world, you know? We wouldn't have yeah. computers. We wouldn't have the internet. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have... have, like, someone smart enough to try and go to Mars. There we go. <laughs> exactly. Or, or crazy enough. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Smart and crazy. There's a, there's a thin, razor, and I mean thin, line between the two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we are forward-thinking people, aren't we? We think outside the box. Oh, yeah. And we need people like that, don't we? Where's the fun in the box? Exactly. (laughs) Who wants to be in the box? (laughs) The box isn't very fun at all. The box is just a box. Adam's here like, um... (laughs) Seeing as how I don't... Seeing as how he has no idea what we're all talking about. No, it's I good think to listen. the only thing, he's just going to be like, oh, I'm going to have to edit some of this out. No, it's all edit good. Edit some of it out. <laughs> edit some of it out. <laughs> as part of your job, you support autistic children and schools to improve their autism, autism practice. What can we do to improve autistic autism pra- practices at school? Massive question. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we, we go... Go big or go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big one. Okay. Sometimes we ask questions that I feel like we shouldn't. 
<laughs> Mr. Adam? <laughs> They're great questions. Okay, so uh, yeah, it's a big one. I think um, I think things are improving. Um, I think, generally speaking, like almost every teacher that I meet wants to, wants the best for their autistic students. Um, and I think the the general thing that we need is understanding, acceptance, um, and basically for people to listen to autistic people so that they understand the actual experience and not just what they see from the outside. Um, and I think, yeah, what is needed is just lots of empathy, lots of understanding, um, and that's mm. the main thing, really. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, it, it's a big question. Um, but I think that answers it. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people get hung up on strategies um, in school. So it's like, oh, this child's autistic, therefore they need, you know, visual timetable, blah, 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 blah. And That's it, not it, always the case. Exactly. It's not one size fits all. And it's, um, it's not always strategies that are needed. It's Sometimes it's just the understanding and knowledge mm-hmm. of the people around them. Uh, to accommodate them, um, yeah. Autis- autistic people are the same as normal people. Yeah, they different. Just, they just <laughs> have a diagnosis. No two, no two people are the same, even with autism. No two autistic people are the same. No, nope. nope. That's None. Absolutely, we, true. there are some similar traits, like like a certain group group don't like loud, loud noises. Another group are light sensitive. Yeah, I'm there are bit. others that find sensation certain words. No. <laughs> I'm a bit kind of like free. I'm a bit quiet like music, but whenever I hear some words, I just go, I'm not reading that. Quiet! Quiet my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right! You should see him at lunchtime. <laughs> Busted! Yeah, so, so yeah, we, we share... Th- Certain similarities, and obviously we think in similar ways, but yeah, we're all very different people. Um, And uh, yeah, I always say like, you know when people say, oh, everyone's a little bit autistic. Well, obviously that isn't true. You're either autistic or you're not. But I think what people mean when they say that is that um, autistic traits are human traits. Yeah. And so they can relate on some level. Mm -hmm. I started saying something recently. Kids with autism, people with autism, and people with not. People without, with no, with, that aren't autistic, their thought trail, straight arrow. As, uh, that's so straight. <laughs> Don't mind us doing little air fishies. No, just a little bit up. We're all over the place. And we think about everything, don't yep. we? Right? However, however, just because our thought patterns are different, doesn't mean we, can, we can't reach the same conclusion. Exactly. Different different paths, same target. Or a better conclusion. Yep. Not that I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, are there any stim- stigmas. stigmas around autism that really annoy you and are Compu- completely wrong? Yeah, loads. Stigmas? I'm confused about that one. <laughs> so stigmas is like... Um, thoughts and yeah oh it's the same as stereotypes yeah. kind of Ish, yeah. yeah um ways in which we're kind of thought of as wrong or deficient or stuff like that um 
So the big one for me that annoys me is autistic people lack empathy, which is... That's not true. No. Excuse me. It's absolutely... Who decided that? Well, people actually believe this, unfortunately. Um, But, yeah, it's absolute nonsense, isn't it? Uh, So... Yeah, that's the one that annoys me the most because I think a lot of autistic people actually have too much empathy and that can be really overwhelming. That's like I struggle in groups of people because um, I absorb everybody's emotions in the room. That's called being an empath, is it not? It is. Kind of noticing someone's emotions before they even notice themselves and kind of absorbing it and sense of feeling the same way I do that all the time like that is and it's it's one of the things that I find most challenging um because I it may I can't I don't know what's my own feelings and what somebody else's um and yeah I'll like tell my husband I'll go you're anxious and I'll go am I and then like yeah he realizes that he is like (laughs) half an hour later um so yeah I that that's a myth that really bothers me um, because some autistic people as well might show their empathy differently um, so they might see someone upset and because they like space when they're upset they just choose to give that person space and it might look like they don't care uh, but really they do they're just doing what you know how they would like to be treated in that situation yeah, how they'd approach the situation yeah what do you guys think how do you experience empathy know what that is when I empathy means um like when someone's sad 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 some people com- people try and comfort them in different ways oh or, yeah I've been and if through you're, some of those so what about emotions how do you find your emotions do you understand oh, um, emotions quite well or? it depends on the situation if I see two people Paul during a very very sad moment I start crying mm-hmm. in Even response you're not even, sad. Yeah, even though I have nothing to do with the situation, okay. should I suddenly start to cry in response as me trying to empathise with the situation? Yeah, well, for... My mind tells me, me, they're crying, maybe you should too. I hate people crying. If you cry on me, I just panic, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, if I see someone going through a really sad moment, I just tell them, are you okay? Do you need anything? This and that. Yeah. Some people even try to get the person off, minds off of what's making them upset. Yeah. Yeah. People try to distract. And mind you, um, I actually was in a situation where someone was in pain one time. I was with the hospital with my brother because he ran into a tree and got a big scab on his oh, head. Oh, ow. That reminds and me of the time I... Never mind. <laughs> Yeah, so pretty much um, this woman came into the children, whatever, and she and her body was, like, burning inside, but obviously there was no burn marks. As in she felt like she yeah. was on fire. That can happen sometimes. Yeah. So I've done a little bit of help, this and that, but her friend was there, so... I also watched her just in case because if something happened, I would just run to the nurse and tell them. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you feel when you see someone upset, does that make you feel upset? No, it feels like you need to do something because yeah. you need to know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's different types of empathy. There's cognitive empathy where 
um, you kind of think about how you can help and that would be what you were <coughs> talking about Jacob and then there's effective empathy when you actually feel what someone else is feeling so there's, there's different types of empathy as well and different yeah. people whether they're autistic or not have different levels yeah of... I do a bit of both yeah sometimes I try and help other times as I stated I start doing things like crying yeah yeah so yeah empathy itself is a complex thing most of the time I try and help out though there are other things that annoy me but I'll leave it there because I'll be here all day yes (laughs) and we don't want to waste your time oh you're not wasting my time and I'm sure you've got other things you need to get done I do but I love talking about autism and I love talking to you guys we would love to talk um, more questions about it but we also got I'm not being rude, I'm just saying because it makes sense. Me me and Tom have been out out doing for the podcast all all day sometimes, thank you very much. (laughs) But you still got school, I still got school. I need to catch up on my work, alright? Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Alison. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Love you guys. Bye-bye. We have some amazing news to share with you. The TWS Sports Podcast has been shortlisted for the 2023 Sports Podcast Award. This is the award that we won last year, thanks to your help for voting for us, so thank you so much. But we obviously need your help again. We have been shortlisted in the Best Equality and Social Sports Podcast. We're up against some huge podcasts from around the world, so we really, really need your help. So please take two minutes to drop us a vote. If you just search Sports Podcast Awards, you'll have to create an account. It takes two minutes. Then find awards, vote, and make sure you vote for us in the best quality and social impact category. We really, really appreciate your votes. Please get your friends, families, colleagues to vote. Vote twice, vote three times. Really, really appreciate it. It means so much to our students, so much to our school, and so much to the autistic community. We really want to keep progressing as a podcast and winning awards like this and even being shortlisted is a huge achievement. So please, please, please drop us a vote. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.